This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2013 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Now streaming only on Hulu. I am against anything and everything that the Russians have been doing to the Ukrainians, including kidnapping their children and uh, trying to assimilate them. This is simply a series of atrocities, many violating the Geneva Conventions, and the Russians must be brought to justice. An estimated 16,000 children have been taken to Russia or Russian-controlled territory since the start of the war. That's according to Ukraine's National Information Bureau. Some human rights experts place the number in the hundreds of thousands, up to 400,000 children. The Yale School of Public Health identified a network of dozens of so-called re-education camps where Ukrainian children are exposed to Russian propaganda and forced to assimilate to Russian culture. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin for the unlawful transfer of children out of Ukraine. Russia claims these children don't have parents or guardians to look after them and has made the adoption of Ukrainian children much easier. After the break, we check in with journalists on the ground in Ukraine and hear about the latest in the war and the efforts to rescue Ukrainian children. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping services? Then give your business a competitive edge with USPS Ground Advantage. Keep things simple with upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. Turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. On this week's episode of Wild Card, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. It's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation. Let's welcome our first guest. Joining us is Liz Cookman. She's a freelance journalist. She wrote about the efforts to rescue Ukrainian children for Foreign Policy magazine, and she joins us from Kiev. Liz, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jen. Thank you. 
Now, Liz, last week, the House Foreign Affairs Committee held a hearing focused on Putin's atrocities and war crimes in Ukraine. Katerina Bobrovska testified before Congress. She's an attorney representing a Ukrainian child named Roman, and she says he was abducted by Russian forces. Here she is speaking through an interpreter. They interrogated the, the kids, aiming their guns at the, at the kids, even shooting above their heads. They had to sleep outdoors and beg for food from local residents. When Roman finally got to his home, до населеного пункту заїхали військові. A military uh, moved in to that community as well. Представники окупаційної влади occupation authorities направили Романа на медичне обстеження. Uh, told Roman to go for a medical exam. Його забрали до місцевої лікарні, де вже перебували і інші діти. And he was put in a local hospital where other uh, children also were kept. У лікарні Роману повідомили, що в нього буде інша родина. And at that hospital he was notified that he will now have a different family. The Roman story is just one example of how children are brought into Russia. Liz, you spoke with Svetlana Markina, whose daughters went to holiday camp in Crimea. How did they end up in a Russian re-education camp? So Svetlana and another of uh, a number of other mothers from Kherson had been um given the choice, proposed the idea that their children went to this holiday camp in Crimea. Russian forces told them that um, it would be a nice break from the children. They had been living under um, shelling and in war for months. And, um, you know, some of the mothers actually thought it would be a good idea. Others didn't, but they were essentially kind of pushed to send the children anyway. Um And you have to remember that a lot of people from Kherson come from quite a low socioeconomic background. And um, some of them thought it would be a good opportunity for the children. But of course, they had no idea that the children wouldn't be coming back. Liz, as you spoke to these parents, when they came to understand that their children were, at least for the time being, beyond their reach, what was their state of mind? What options do they have for trying to recover their children? So the group of mothers I spoke to, um, there was a group of 13 mothers who um, they spent two months with Save Ukraine formulating a plan to reach their children in Crimea. And I spoke to them both before they left and also when they came back with their children. Um, And they had spent six months without their children. They had celebrated birthdays without them, Christmases without them. One mother told me that she used to wear her son's clothes around the house so she could feel close to him. It was very difficult, very emotionally draining. Um, as you, not long after the children had left, um, Kherson was liberated. Um, so Kherson was previously also under Russian occupation. And they had no way to get to occupied Crimea to get their children. So yeah, it was extremely distressing. They had no idea what they were going to do until Save Ukraine came along. Um, and when I spoke to the mothers before they went uh, left on this extremely arduous journey from Ukraine, through Poland, Belarus, into Russia and to Crimea to retrieve the children by themselves, um, they were extremely nervous. Um, not so much because they were scared of the Russians. Their main overriding fear is that something would go wrong and they wouldn't be able to get to their children. Mm. 
Vitaly Vertash is a Ukrainian teenager who was returned home from a Russian camp a couple of weeks ago. He spoke with Al Jazeera English about his experience inside the camp. The first two weeks were normal, but after three weeks, I started to look for every possibility to go home. They fed us porridge without salt and sugar three times a day. Every evening they spoke to us about politics. They would say Russia is a powerful country and Ukraine is a terrorist one. Liz, what have you learned about what happens inside these camps based on what you've heard? So I spoke to a number of children and they'd had slightly different experiences. Some of them had actually, since they'd left um, Ukraine, had actually been to several different camps and they'd had slightly different experiences in each of them. Um, For example, one child told me that he went to three camps and at the second one they used to make them um, march in the evening and if they didn't march correctly they would have to march around the block repeatedly as punishment, which is quite tough for, you know, quite a tough punishment for young children. Um, So the children I spoke to I think had slightly less severe experience than some others that have Um, like the one that we've just heard from. Um, But I think what was really difficult is that they knew that their home city was being attacked. After Kherson was liberated, it was still being attacked. In fact, it was attacked more with missiles after it was liberated. And knowing that their parents were at home and living through that was extremely emotionally stressful for them. Um, And also they had their free will taken away from them. They had to stay in a camp they, although they had, you know, their basic needs provided, it wasn't a choice, um, which again is very stressful for a child. The Yale School of Public Health documented at least 43 re-education camps and so-called adoption facilities stretching from Siberia to Crimea, with an estimated 6,000 children being held in them. The Yale team says the scope of the system is significantly larger, but these were camps they were able to identify. How did these reports lead to that arrest warrant for President Putin from the International Criminal Court? So the International Criminal Court sent an investigator to Ukraine who worked with Save Ukraine, Um, and documented a number of cases of forced deportations. And they collected those as evidence against Putin. You mentioned this journey, this arduous journey, these mothers went on to try to recover their children. What did they experience along that journey? And how were they able to ultimately get their children back home? Yeah, so it's an extremely tough and brave undertaking. So... Um, NGO workers from Save Ukraine or other groups can't go to Russia because it's too dangerous. And men who are between 18 and 60 cannot leave Ukraine because of mobilisation rules. So that means it it falls on um, mothers and close to female relatives to actually physically go into Russia to places where they've located children, such as holiday camps, and bring them back. So these mothers, I think, I believe that the journey is slightly different each time, but these mothers, they they departed from Kiev, they went to Poland, they then um, travelled to Belarus where they flew to Moscow and then in the airport in Moscow they were subject to questioning for 10 hours, around 10 hours, um, quite intense questioning. Save Ukraine had already um, taught them you know, what to say, you know, what kind of questions they'd be asked, you know, things like, do they have male um, family members who are currently fighting? And to make sure that they deleted anything that was like overtly pro-Ukrainian off their phones. So they were prepared, but it was still quite stressful. 
Um, and once they were let go, they then travelled through Russia all the way into occupied Crimea. They had one hour at the camp where they, um, you know, everybody was crying, all the children were crying, all the mothers were crying, everybody was extremely happy to see each other, but then they had to get back on the road. So this journey, all in all, took about a week, um, and a lot of it they were just sat in vehicles or, you know, in, in transit. They only spent two nights in a hotel in that week. So it's very physically demanding. Um, a lot of the mothers, when they came back, they said they couldn't feel their legs. They had various, like, small health complaints. And one, um, one lady, um, a 65-year-old grandmother called um, Olga, Sadly, she the journey was so stressful for her that she actually had a heart attack mm. in um, Krasnodar in Russia and she died. Um, and as a result, uh, nobody was able to retrieve her grandchildren who she was going to collect and save Ukraine is now trying to find a way to, um, um, to help them. When they arrived at these camps to, to claim their children, did they meet any resistance from the people running them? <laughs> No, from my understanding um, that these mothers basically have, um, they have a lot of paperwork with them that proves that they are um, female family members and therefore they are not, like the Russians are not allowed to keep the children if it's a close family member. It's like a legal legal, um, requirement that they have to let them go to them if they can prove that they're their children. Liz, what are the major challenges these families face in trying to recover their children beyond just the distance they have to cover to reach them? Um, One of the major challenges is that, um, you know, these children, when they, many of the mothers were able to be in contact with their children while they were in the camp, although sometimes it was only once a week because shelling of Kherson might take out the, the power lines or the phone connection. But, of course, those children couldn't openly speak about what was going on. And so they had no idea what kind of um, state their children were going to be in when they got to them. Um, And also, I mean, these women spent six months without their children when they went to go and get them. Their children were more mature. They'd spent six months without parents. They were taller. They had changed, um, which takes an adjustment period. And when they bring them back, um, there is a two or three month period of um, psychological support for those children so they can try and process what's happened to them and try and understand um, that it's not okay to be told that Ukraine doesn't exist (laughs) as a country and that, um, you know, that Russia is is, uh, some kind of benevolent being. And they then, um, but then they have to go back to their homes in Kherson, which is, there's still a war. There's still um, the city is still in a very difficult position after liberation. There's only two supermarkets open. They have basic infrastructure, but there's not very little work. So they're then going back to after all of that ordeal. They're then going back to quite a difficult situation. What is the Russian legal response to these rescue efforts? Um, so far, they haven't encountered many problems in terms of at the border or with legal requirements. But what has complicated things is um, previously in Russia, you um, could not adopt a foreign child without the um, without the, the country that that child is from agreeing to it. And in May, Putin changed the law that, um, that that requirement is no longer in place. So now 
children can be forcibly adopted within Russia a lot more easily. Um, the children on, children's ombudsman in Russia herself, uh, Maria Lvova Belova, has adopted a child, a 15-year-old child from Mariupol, who they claim is an orphan. But um, it's very difficult now to be able to trace what happens to these children and where they go. So in your continued reporting specifically on this issue, the, the work to recover these children, what stories are you following or what developments are you watching for? I'm uh, currently following, um, I'm trying to follow, I'm staying with the mothers that I previously um, met because I'm really interested to see not just how their children have um, settled into life now when they've come back, but also how they are in three months, six months, a year, because I think that's going to be um, probably a really important part of this that gets missed is that um, psychological stress and issues can often materialise much further down the line. Coming up, we'll also learn more about Ukraine's war effort and the planned spring counteroffensive. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Warby Parker. Their glasses start at $95, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Try five pairs of frames at home for free. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Now let's get back to our discussion about the war in Ukraine. We are 14 months into Russia's full-scale invasion with no clear end in sight. Recently leaked Pentagon documents about the war paint a grim picture of the human cost. One report said Russian casualties, that's injuries and deaths, could be as high as 223,000 and that Ukrainian casualties could be as high as 131,000. Let's add another voice to the conversation. Joining us now is BBC's Ukraine correspondent, James Waterhouse. He's also a regular on the BBC's Ukraine cast. That's a weekly podcast focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. James, thanks for joining us. James, you've been living in Ukraine since January of last year, right before the invasion, and you've reported on prisoner of war camps and fighting on the front lines. How do you categorize the current stage of the war compared to where we were 14 months ago? Well, it's, it's it's hard to kind of reflect on just how much has happened since the the that fast moving, impossible to uh, digest invasion. Such were the speed of events. But I think we in this spring are emerging from 
quite an attritional Russian tactic of launching missiles and drones aimed at Ukraine's infrastructure. It has, yes, been a difficult winter for so many, and that has been felt. But if its design was to force the Ukrainian population into submission, well, in that sense, it has failed. So here we are now where, yes, if you are, for example, in the northeastern Kharkiv region, if you live in towns, cities and villages close to the front line or the border with Russia, then daily shelling and missile strikes have been, become a part of daily life. That said, we are in an incredibly static period. The talk from the moment of New Year was a spring offensive and who would do it first. And I think we've seen Russia try to once again launch offensives from multiple locations. And we've heard time and time again about the city of Bakhmut, this eastern city which has very much dominated the headlines. The gains for Russia have been relatively small, but incredibly hard fought and incredibly costly. Mm. Nevertheless, in a war of attrition, when you're the underdog like Ukraine, you are still in the weaker position. And now there is growing speculation as to when, and if it is able to, Ukraine will mount its own counteroffensive to try and ultimately you know, force Russia out, which it would dearly love to do, but a lot seems to need to happen. Well, over the weekend, a report from the Institute for the Study of War identified Ukrainian soldiers stationed near the city of Kherson on the eastern side of the Dnipro River. What more are we learning about this possible spring counteroffensive? Well, this is a, a credible report. The, the, the ISW are pretty good at, at, at monitoring military movement in that sense. Just to give you an idea, the Dnipro River splits the Kherson region in two effectively in that southern part of Ukraine. And we saw the city itself liberated, the only regional, regional capital to fall to the Russians last October. And the Russians effectively had to retreat over the river to the uh, eastern bank. They destroyed the, the bridges behind them. And that kind of formed this new watery front line, which we've seen since. Now, while there is a lot of excitement around Ukrainian forces reportedly establishing themselves on some parts of that eastern bank. It is also important to say that there's been military activity along this riverside riverside for for months really since Russia was forced to retreat. The immediate eastern bank is is quite swampy, it's quite thick and it effectively forms a kind of no man's land. I saw it for myself and and it's very hard to make out any kind of military presence in that area. But if, if it is the case that Ukraine is looking to establish itself more, it could either be part of a credible advance or it could be simply to give Russia something to think about. Because what it did last year when it retook swathes of territory is that it talked up an offensive in the south and mounted a huge offence in the northeast. So this could be part of that as well. We saw a, a drone attack again uh, in Sevastopol, in, in, in occupied Crimea. So what you're seeing is Ukraine trying to give the Russians a few more things to think about. We got this email from Cindy who writes, I'm frustrated that we're not doing more to end this horrific attack and decimation of Ukraine by Russia. We keep putting the brakes on the things that Ukraine needs to do to protect itself and to defeat the Russians, like warplanes. Meanwhile, people are dying and the cities and countryside is being destroyed and there's so much suffering everywhere. Well, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Germany on Friday and met with members of the Ukraine Contact Group. That's a group of 40 countries allied in support of Ukraine's war effort. Ukraine has been fighting bravely to defend its people, its sovereignty, and its freedom. And countries from around the world have condemned Russia's atrocities and aggression and stood up for an open world 
of rules and rights. And ladies and gentlemen, more than a year later, Ukraine is still standing strong. And our support has not wavered. And I'm proud of the progress that we have made together. James, briefly, what additional military and financial support have the United States and the Ukraine group pledged to Ukraine? Well, the big thing to come out of this Ramstein meeting were continued uh, military packages worth billions of dollars, uh, notably around uh, missiles, because Ukraine is... Well, there are big concerns that Ukraine is run, is running out of key, uh, key stockpiles uh, in terms of its air defences and its ability to defend itself. That's partly a result of Russia continuing to launch widespread drone and, and, and missile attacks. So we, we've seen the US continue its pledge. We've also seen countries like Germany um, provide a sizable military package as well, including thousands of rounds of ammunition, hand grenades, mortars, armoured vehicles, as well as, as, as more tanks. And I think, uh, you know, to pick up on Cindy's point, I think it's not yet clear what difference fighter jets will make in this war, I don't think. It's not something Ukraine has shelved completely, but it's clear the West is a lot more reluctant to provide those. But in this war, neither side really has air superiority. And I don't think it matters whether you're flying in a Soviet-era MiG fighter jet or, or whether you're, you're flying something much more modern. They are all at risk of being taken out by both sides' air defence systems, which have proven to be very highly effective. What's interesting about this Ramstein meeting is what wasn't discussed, and Ukraine is still peddling its campaign for for NATO membership, for its chance to join the alliance. And while you know the Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg he chaired that Ramstein meeting, he's you know used rhetoric like Ukraine's place is in NATO in the long term, but to Kiev's frustration. It's not getting any sense of time frame. And in the words of the German defence minister, Boris Pistorius, he said, the door is ajar, but now is not the time to discuss it. That said, there are real concrete outcomes to, to these kind of meetings. And these outcomes are crucial to Ukraine, not just holding the line and defending itself, but ultimately mounting any kind of offensive. Liz, you've also reported from Ukraine since January of last year and seen the devastation of the war on Ukrainian soldiers. Your latest story for The Telegraph explores the incredible demand for prosthetic limbs. How are clinics responding to the growing need for prosthetic limbs as injuries among Ukrainian soldiers and civilians continues to climb? Well, it's been very difficult. And one of the biggest difficulties is um, a lack of skilled people. So clinics need... um, prosthetics, uh, skilled prosthetics uh, engineers and um, rehabilitation specialists to be able to treat people. They need to have people who can fit new limbs, who can cast new limbs. Um, And it takes time to train people. Um, They are trying to do that now, um, but it's very difficult. Like a clinic would have to, at the moment, they have to train those people themselves. And that can take a year, a year and a half, plus a lot of resources. Um, And this has been very, very difficult for them. Um, Another aspect that's been quite difficult is um, the sourcing of um, components. So prosthetic limbs usually have a a socket that's made out of uh, resin and then they have uh, mechanical prosthetics. Anyway, they have various components that are chosen for their parts. So like the UK makes the best knees, the prosthetic clinic here told me. so, but those those um, those parts are currently not made in Ukraine for the most part. So they have to be imported, and that can take a lot of time. 
And to try and cut down wait times, clinics need to try and order huge amounts of parts ahead of time, but they don't always have the financial resources to do that, and it's very difficult. Um, So now there is a big push to try and do more of these things inside Ukraine, because for most people, getting a prosthetic limb is not a one-time thing. Often people need more than one limb for different activities, such as like running or, um, you know, playing sports. Um, And also most people need um, their limbs to be serviced and they need replacement parts. Um, And they need whole new limbs often every sort of, between two and five years. And so this is a issue that is not temporary, even when the war is over. This is something that will carry on for a long time, especially as the country is heavily mined and people believe that it might take five to ten years to clear the mines, even if the war finished tomorrow. So people will continue to lose their limbs and people will continue to need prosthetic limbs for quite a long time. So there's, yeah, as I said, there's currently quite a big push to try and be able to service these needs inside Ukraine through, um, you know, there's some startups who are trying to find new technological ways to, to fix this problem, such as 3D printing uh, parts inside Ukraine. Um, and there's also new clinics trying to open up with international funding to try and give people kind of world-class care. We got this email from Guy who says, can your panel comment on the West's obligations to support Ukraine at this moment as laid out in the Budapest memorandum? And Putin's decision to invade violates that memorandum. And it was an instrument assuring Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It was struck in 1994. It also required Ukraine to relinquish its nuclear arsenal. James, what are the West's obligations? Well, I think I think if, you, if we're talking about the West and the US being the biggest player, this is about the new security order being at stake. I think if you're looking at the shifting power dynamic that is existing between Russia and China and Chinese uh, influence, which is which is growing, that is that is of a developing concern for the White House. But also, it's about the precedent of. Russian aggression. I think Western allies have been guilty in 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 the nine years of of Russian aggression imposed over Ukraine, in terms of ineffective sanctions, in terms of Vladimir Putin continuing to be uh, engaged with on a, on an official basis. I think there is, you know, if you see the former U.S. President Bill Clinton express his regret at overseeing Ukraine surrendering its its nuclear arsenal to Russia. Um, And you just need to look at the comments of the Chinese ambassador to France, questioning the rights of former Soviet blocs like Estonia, like Latvia, like Ukraine, um, questioning their very existence. It's a similar kind of rhetoric that was coming out of the Kremlin ahead of uh, the full-scale invasion last year. So I think at the moment, there is a political will from the West, uh, or wish, for Ukraine to prevail. It is still a sovereign country that is under attack. Uh, And it's also, you know, one of the sticking points of Vladimir Putin last year was the expansion of NATO. And the net result of this invasion is that Finland has subsequently joined, doubling Russia's border with NATO members, and Sweden is set to, to follow suit. So we are talking about these two huge political tectonic plates rubbing against each other, uh, and I think the the West is keen for, for Ukraine to, to be the line in the sand. That said, what Kiev will want and what it has wanted all along 
is for Western boots to be on the ground, rather than all these platitudes from the European Union and the NATO alliance saying, look, we're with you for as long as it takes. You know, Ukraine is feeling pretty hard done by and pretty left out, given its long-standing political will to be a part of both. James, what are you watching as you continue to watch this question play out uh, around how other countries are deciding how to support Ukraine and how much support to provide? I think, look, at the risk of trivialising this brutal conflict and making it sound like a trailer or or like a a dramatic chapter, I think the upcoming spring, summer and autumn is significant. It feels increasingly like a do-or-die moment for Ukraine if it is to prevail. Uh, And I think, you know, we are talking about the spring offensive. It'll be desperate to keep the negotiating table at bay through military progress. But if that progress does not come, for whatever reason then we could well be seeing a typical North and South Korea-esque divide in Ukraine because Russia has shown that it is not adverse to digging in for the long haul. So the next few months could well be significant, but we mustn't lose sight of the daily cost this war is causing. That's James Waterhouse, the Ukraine correspondent for the BBC. Also with us, Liz Cookman. She's a freelance journalist based in Kyiv. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts.